I'm on a mission. A mission to speak with the most inspiring people from all over the world. I want to know their stories. I want to know what stories they used to tell. And are those the same stories that they're telling today? Or did they redefine that story to overcome limiting beliefs and achieve their dreams? I want to help them share their stories. Why? Because I know the power of the story. I know that it can make or break you. It can give you the world or it can tear it apart. There's always two sides going down in your head and you get to choose. Will I listen to the one that's trying to stop me or the one that keeps pushing? These are their stories and this is the stories we tell. What's up guys, it's your host Jamie Messina and this is the Stories We Tell podcast. Um, We have an awesome guest today, his name's Corey Calvin. But first, I wanted to ask you, if you hadn't hit that subscribe button yet, go ahead and do that and head over and leave us a review. If you got any value out of today's episode, if you get value out of today's episode, head over and leave us a review, five stars preferably, and um, you know, that will really help us to get the message out. And one of my missions in life is to touch a million people worldwide with some positive uh, energy that's going to inspire them to go after what they want in life. So um, go ahead, leave us a review. Today we have Corey Calvin. He is a best-selling author. He is the founder of Pivot Trips, and he's one of my best friends here in St. Pete, Florida. And I'm really excited to share our conversation with you all. So enjoy the show. All right, we got Corey Calvin in the house. Now, first of all, um, Corey was one of the first people I met when I moved to St. Pete, and honestly, uh, so grateful that our friend Alex, who will be on a future episode, introduced us because um, just the energy that he brings and um, the vibe and overall, like, I really haven't had a chance to talk to you about your story beyond, um, we're in a, a business together, it's it's a ketone business with Prove It, but that's not what really what we're going to talk about today, but I haven't really explored your story beyond that, so I'm really excited to kind of chat today. Yeah, Jamie, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right, so I was looking up your book, author. So how many books have you actually authored? I have authored two books that are both on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So I know the um, Jump Without a Parachute. Correct. What's the other book? The Jump Without a Parachute is the second book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, the first book is called, and it's a memoir, so it's my life leading up to a certain point. And I don't want to give away the ending necessarily because you'll have to read it. Um, but it's called I Almost Became Me. Oh, interesting. All right. So I, I wanted to like jump into those today because I know, so Jump Without a Parachute is, is that the one that's about your time on like Wall Street and coming out and, and all that? Or is that the memoir one? That's the memoir. Right. Um, Jump Without a Parachute is more about um, me discovering how unfulfilled I was mm-hmm. in the corporate world. And it's really my journey of jumping out of comfort and into a world of unknown and the steps I had to take. So it's, it's more of a how-to book on how to help someone in a very unfulfilled situation, whether that be a career, a relationship, a life position, mm-hmm. a city, any situation, and helping them jump um, without knowing the answers. And that those answers that we love to know are the parachute strings that really hold us back and allow us to have the landing. But And um, so, like, just tell me what it was like, and I'll just, I'm sure that will come up. So just tell me what it was like 
you know, being on Wall Street, right? Was it Wall Street? And being like this very handsome, by the way, guys, anytime I post a picture <laughs> of Corey and I on my Facebook, I have about nine or 10 women being like, who is that in men? Who is that? I'm like, uh, just back up people. Um, so very handsome, tall, athletic, muscular, <laughs> successful, smart guy on Wall Street who knows he's gay, who I'm sure faces a lot of like stuff internally. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, do you, well, I was thinking, should I go back into how it all started with my father, or do you want me to talk about that a little later? I guess that leads into that. So let me start. It's a great question with Wall Street. So I had just graduated um, from Ball State University, and which is in Indiana, by the way. Um, if those, for those of you who don't know where Ball State is, Indiana, it's not that you know Wall Street recruits at schools in Indiana. Um, and it's not that in, like Indiana is the most progressive state in the union, as you, as many of you probably understand. And so, this is in the late '90s. I graduated, and I had had happened to land a job on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And remember, in college, I well, not that you remember it. I guess I remember that I was student body president at Ball State University. I was vice president of my fraternity. I was very athletic. We won all kinds of volleyball um, competitions and. Everyone on campus knew me. It was 20,000-person university. Everyone knew me. I did an internship in New York, and that's what landed me my job on Wall Street after I graduated. Now, remember, I didn't come out until after I graduated, came out to my mother. It was the week before I left for New York. It was was, um, that moment in my life where I moved to New York and realized that for those of you that are from a small town or a small community, you know that it's very difficult because everybody knows who you are. It doesn't matter what you do, but everyone knows who you are. And so for me, I had to hide my sexuality and really hide who I was in, in high school. And then even in college, because everyone knew who I was, I was not out in college. So everyone thought I was this dude that liked women. And then when I finally moved to New York... I could begin to explore who I really was Mm -hmm. because no one would know who I was. I mean, New York City, one of the largest cities in the United States, in the world, I was literally just one of those people walking down the street. No one cared who I was. It was perfect. Like I could have wore a a pride (laughs) flag on my back to work every day, but I didn't. And then, you know, the question about working on Wall Street, for those of you that have watched any movie on Wall Street, you understand the masculinity that you know is that Wall Street exudes. Is that it's a, a dog eat dog world, and you have to be really tough. And I think one of the things that helped me excel in that field is that I had gone through lots of adversity in my childhood and in my in high school and in college that prepared me to be strong enough to deal with working with those types of people. And now I did not come out on Wall Street. That wasn't until later, um, which we can go into about how I came out in corporate America. My first five years, I was not out of the closet because I did not want anybody to know that I was gay because I knew that in that environment, I would have gotten especially back in the early 2000s. I mean, it might be different now. Um, But back in the early 2000s, I knew that I would have been 
whatever word you want to use, made fun of, snide comments. I mean, I worked with mostly men, and so, and mostly straight men, I'm assuming. Um, if anybody were gay, they were in the closet because I did not know anybody in my 100 person unit that was gay. Mm-hmm. And so I hid my sexuality for a while after I entered the, the corporate world because I was afraid of of what the ramifications were not that I would be fired but it would be more about the emotional distress I'd go through in addition to the long hours that I was working and so I was able just to put my head down and work really hard and prove and this is something that I this is a theme that maybe some of you can relate to is that you know being gay I think I felt like I had to prove my worth to other people through my career and through other things in my life, like excelling at volleyball and excelling in college and excelling my grades, because I wanted people to look at me as a human being that was excelling in life. Because in the back of my mind, I felt being gay was a weakness of mine. It wasn't until later that I discovered that being gay was my strength. Yes. But early on, because I thought it was my weakness, I, you know, overperformed, if you will, on everything else in my life. So people would look at me as a successful human being. So that's really my story about Wall Street. I wasn't out on Wall Street, um, but I worked my butt off and excelled. And everyone looked at me as like, wow, Corey is a super successful human being. It's it's so interesting that you say that about, you know, so your, I guess, blanket was uh, excelling at things. Mine was being overly kind to everyone and trying to bridge that gap. Like, so I was out and they knew, but... Even though there were people that were probably made me feel uncomfortable because of the things they would say, like, you know, oh, you just haven't had me yet, like a guy or something. Instead of, like, saying what I wanted to say, like, F off, I would try to bridge the gap and be overly nice to people because I figured, you know, again, that I was less than or it was a bad thing or, you know, and so I over-excelled in being kind or trying to bridge a gap where at times I should have just been like, hey, buzz off, you know? <laughs> so I get that 100%. Yeah. Okay, so how did... Um, well, first of all, you killed it in corporate America, too. Oh, yeah. I slayed it. Oh, yeah. And eventually you came out there. Correct. So um, my story continues. I moved to Florida the first time um, and worked in consulting and was not out in the corporate environment that I was I was working in in St. Petersburg, Florida. In fact, one of the chapters that I write about in my first book um, is about wearing a mask to work. And the mask is not a literal mask. I'm not wearing a literal mask, but I'm wearing almost like this guise. You call it a blanket. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's this guise that you change who you are and the things that you say when you enter an environment when you're in the closet mm-hmm. or when you and by the way the closet can be any type of closet not just coming out of the closet of as gay it could be coming out with uh, a handicap it can, can be coming out with some sort of medical condition it can be coming out with some sort of emotional condition right every human being in my opinion comes out of some sort of closet mm-hmm. but in the gay context in the corporate world I wore a mask to work and I, it really was interesting. So I worked for a private company, um, in Florida 
and we went through this team building exercise. And I write about this in my book um, and how they put us all in the same room. We filled this questionnaire. If anybody's done a DISC assessment, D-I-S-C, mm-hmm. there's lots of assessments out there like Myers-Briggs and personality tests. But DISC, D-I-S-C, really talks about what your innate abilities and characteristics are when you're not around other people. And then it's the same questions, but in the context of when you're in the work environment or when you're in an organization. Mm-hmm. And we went through, everyone filled this assessment beforehand, um, before one day. And then the, one day, this HR woman brought us all into the same room, and there was a circle or a quadrants for DISC, right, about who you are um, and what quadrant you fall in. But this was a team activity, so everybody in the room had a different position on this grid. And so she was really excited and she said, okay, everyone, everyone to walk to the position that you are when you are um, in the work environment and everyone walked to the same quadrant, right? At different spots. And of course, depending on where you were in the quadrant, it meant kind of how far away you were in the range. Yeah. And we all kind of, were all driven, you know, type A people Um and then the next question was, okay, now I want you to move into the quadrant where you are when you're not at work. And most of the people moved like a step or two away from they were. I slowly made my way across the room to the complete opposite quadrant. Yeah. <laughs> and the woman in HR, of course, was so excited because she has an example to use to explain what the difference was between where, how you act in the corporate world or in the, an, an organization versus how you are when you're not in the organization. <laughs> and she, it was, I was extremely embarrassed because it was almost like I was forced to come out and I didn't come out, but it was interesting because she said, now, you know, here's Corey who in the work environment is one thing, but when he leaves the work environment, he thinks different. He thinks in a different way. And I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like someone just exposed my shield, my mask. Yeah. And so I thought it was really interesting. And it really started to make me wonder why. And that was the pivot moment of, I think I'm ready. You know, I was in my late twenties, maybe I'd turned 30 at the time. It was, I was ready. Like, why am I shielding who I am for any moment of my life? You know, we only have so many minutes to live. Like, why am I going to not be me? And this is an interesting part about my book. The title is I Almost Became Me. Mm. There were many moments in my life where I was almost me, but I really wasn't. And so the book was really cathartic to write about because there are all these experiences in my life. I finally was able to overcome them. And so... A couple years later, I landed a job at PepsiCo in New York, in Chicago, um, and that was the moment I had gotten my MBA, and that was the moment where I said, from this point forward, I'm going to be me in every situation, not just outside of work, right. not just to a few close friends. And so in my interview with Pepsi, that with the hiring manager, he asked me the question, why do you want to come work for Pepsi? And I'll never forget the answer because it was, I want to work in an environment where I'm free to be all of me and not just part of me. And I know that PepsiCo is, you know, a Fortune 50 company and prides themselves on equality and diversity in the workplace. And I'm a gay man and I want to make sure that it's, I'm not rewarded not only for my performance, but also for being me Mm -hmm. and I can allow myself to be me. And then I... I, we can go even further. I'll pause at that. But that's the moment that I came out. I mean, I even went on to 
become part of the global LGBTQ plus employee resource group. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I eventually chaired it my last year at PepsiCo um, to help other people live their most authentic life and become, you know, out of the closet if they wanted to, not just part of the time, but all the time, which included the corporate world. Yeah. So it's interesting. You're talking about masks. I made a post yesterday talking about, I have this like rainbow mask. I just put it away so you wouldn't see. And it was a post talking about, um, you know, that we're all, we all wake up each morning and we put on a mask. Um, it's either a mask that was handed to us by somebody else along the way, a childhood or whatever. Maybe it's, you know, somebody telling you like gay is bad. You need to hide this, put this mask on, or it's the one that we made specifically for ourselves, which is, you know, this is me, this, I'm going to be out and I'm going to be proud. And I'm going to be really good at PepsiCo and do all the things and put that mask on. But there is a mask that we put on each morning. And so, um, it's interesting. Now the mask you were putting on before your full authentic self, um, that was a story you were telling yourself. And so is that something that came from your dad that, or just growing up around other boys and like, what made you feel like, Hey, I, I'm not going to be treated the same or I can't share who I am, um, until you were 30. Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, I have many answers. I think the one answer that comes to mind is all about role models and, you know, growing up in a small community of 3,500 people, and I graduated with 70 people, mm. combine that with, and it, by the way, it was like 99% white, right? So everyone looked the same. Um, most people had, had a mom and a dad. Um, there were very few people um, in the community that looked any different. Mm. And so when I started realizing that I may not be the same as everybody, even though I looked the same, you know, right? And this is why I think there are diversity goes beyond skin color. Like, you know, it's, a, it's almost like a hidden diversity because you don't, you can't look at someone and just be like, oh, that person's gay or that person kind of like, does that person have a learning disability? Well, you don't know that, mm-hmm. right? So it's deeper within just the skin color, which I think it's harder for people to understand is because it's not visible. It's invisible. And so I think growing up, I, I knew that I was different. I remember there was this, these two women that lived at the end of my street. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting. And they had a child, younger child. And I remember asking my mom, like, Mom, these two women live together. And I remember my mom. My mom grew up on a farm. She didn't really know what the word gay meant. In fact, when I came out to her, she's like, oh, you're just really happy. And I was like, no. like oh, wow. You know, and this is this is the mentality, and it's not that she, you know, she didn't she really didn't know anybody that was gay. Yeah. If she did, they didn't tell her. You know, and that she was thirty some years old in, in a small town. So, anyway, I think a lot of people didn't quite understand that because they had never met someone that was gay, and in fact, if they did, people that were out in the small town because they chose to stay in the small town, maybe. We're not, I don't know, I don't, this is like the wrong context, but I think you understand like popular. I, I, I don't want to say, yeah. I, I don't want to say that in a, a weird way because it kind of reminds me of like Wicked and Popular, <laughs> the song, <laughs> one of my favorite songs from Wicked. Oh but anyway, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's almost like if you're gay in a small town back in the 90s, you probably didn't fit in. Right. In a sad way, and it's sad. And I think that's gotten better, but I think that's why most people move to an urban environment because they fit. They can find a place to fit in. They're not gonna subject their lives every day 
to not fitting in. But anyway, this w- these two ladies lived at the end of the street, and I didn't know what the word lesbian meant. Or mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, these two ladies live together. Well, maybe they were together, and I didn't think anything different about it. I'm like, oh, well, maybe they're together. Like, they love each other. But I, in my mind, I was like, well, that's weird. Like, is that possible? Like, mm-hmm. what if... And I, I think I like men or boys... But I don't see anybody around me that's a guy with another guy. Mm-hmm. Like I just didn't see that. And so I think combine that story with my father who wanted me to be masculine and wanted me to play football and wanted me to build engines like he did and build houses like he did. And in the book, I write about you know stories. Um, one of the big stories in the book about me um, almost drowning, pulling out weeds from under a boat at our lake house because he wanted me to force me to be masculine or force me to be the to to uh, to do something a man should do. While my mom was in tears, knowing that I was struggling underwater under a boat because our in inboard motor had sucked up these weeds, and I was I don't know how old I was nine or ten, struggling to like getting tangled in the weeds, and I almost drowned. Oh my god. But my dad forced me, even though I didn't want to. And, you know, I realized that my father wanted me to be him. He wanted me to be the star athlete. He wanted me to be someone that would know how to change engines out of a car. He wanted me to know how to do all these things that he wanted. And I think, I think that was where I realized that I don't know, something just was different. And, you know, I was scared to, and you talk about going back to your question about when did you know that you had put a mask on? I just didn't see anybody like me that I could trust to go talk to um, without fear of exposing my secret. Because, as you know, a secret isn't a secret if more than one person knows, and that more than one person is you. <laughs> so if more than one person knows, it no longer is a secret. And in a small town, things spread like wildfire. I know. (laughs) So I felt that I had to wear my, I had to put on my mask to protect myself and my secret. And therefore, that's when I first started wearing a mask because I knew that if anybody would know my deeper secrets, that it wouldn't be a secret, number one. And number two, people would probably find out and that would have consequences for the rest of my life and change the trajectory from for where I would have been. I don't know. It's hard to say, like, would I have been that successful in life if I would have came out at an early age? I don't know. That's hard to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So you truly believed that you had to protect the secret, you know, because we talk about the stories we tell and like the whole basis of where I came up with that name was, all right, we're all, we all told ourselves or it's very rare that you're born and you come out of the womb and everybody in your life is perfect and you never have this story that you start telling yourself in your head that's not necessarily true. It's a limiting belief or disempowering. Um, I think it's rare for anyone to, to not experience that, right? So many of us who I know anyway, like you and I and, and some other people, have overcome those stories and now get to share those stories with other people to maybe inspire in them to, to break through their things that are holding them back. Um, so like... What were you telling yourself back then? Like, if they figure out or if they find out this secret, people are going to treat me different. Um, I might not get positions or go to the school I want. Or what was the story? Yeah, no, that's a great one. Like I said, I think everyone has to come out of some closet, whether you're gay or straight. Um, And those are the stories that we tell ourselves because if we have to tell somebody, things might be different in our life. And I think for me... 
you know, going to college was not something everyone did at the time. Um, half the students did and half the students didn't. I think in my mind, I thought that I would not live a life of success. Mm. I thought that I would live almost the life of those two ladies at the end of my street. Mm. That I would be, they didn't really have any friends. They really didn't talk to people. They were shy. They almost were like recluse. I mean, they would say hi when I'd walk by or I would say hi first. But in my mind, I thought that maybe I would have to spend the rest of my life in a small town without any friends. Um, and I think that was actually the time of, uh, about the Matthew Shepard yes. incident. And 1999, that, right, or 98? Yeah, and I knew about it, but I didn't. In, in my mind, I thought, well, maybe my life would end because someone would kill me. Yes. If I came out of the closet. Ooh, I kind of have chills right now. I was just thinking about Matthew Shepard yesterday. And so I think that was the thing in my mind is that it wasn't like if, it was like I will never tell anybody. Right. And also, this is another part of the book that I talk about is religion. Oh, yes. And I was raised Catholic. And so I remember there's a story. Oh gosh, I don't know how deep. I don't know how honest we can be in your podcast. You can be honest. Like this is who they know who I am. <laughs> so um, I was on a, in the seventh grade, and this is these are stories all really have shaped my. You ask about the stories we tell ourselves. It really shaped the story, and you add God into the mix, right? Like you are going to hell if you do certain things. And I was, I'll never forget. This is a story I write in my first book about my seventh grade, like church service. It was during the middle of the week. We had, we got to miss school. Like, I don't know, like all the Catholic kids got to miss school. We all went to the church and they divided the boys and the girls up into sections. And I'll never forget the priest sat at the front with this really tall white hat that yes. almost looked, well, it looked weird. You and it was a white robe. I feel like that's what they do at confirmation. That yeah, like this tubular thing at the top Did of their head. I, no, but like he was all in like in character, like this yes. costume. And I'll never forget, all the boys are on this concrete floor. Mm. There was probably like 25. And we're all in the seventh grade. And the priest starts, gives hands out pieces of paper. And well, I'm in this story. I got I to finish it. Well, he basically said, I want you to write down a question that you've always been curious about that you want to know how it relates to religion. And all the boys looked around and were like, this is the weirdest thing. Like, we don't know. We're here because we get to miss school. We're not here to like whatever. And so I looked around and I could see all the bo other boys not really writing anything down their paper. And they'd fold up the paper. And then when the priest came around, he would, they would drop in their piece of paper. It was blank. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think any of the kids really wrote anything down. So I didn't write anything down. And I dropped my piece of paper in and it was really weird. And the priest was almost like circling us like a hook. And he was like, and all the boys are in this maintenance circle. And he's kind of circling, getting that piece of paper. And then he goes up to this chair that sits in this high chair with this tall tubular hat and pulls out the first piece of paper and is going to read it out loud. And I'll never forget this. It was the weirdest thing. We were all kind of giggling because we thought that there would be nothing on the paper. Yeah. He pulls out a piece of paper and starts reading. I don't know if he was actually reading or it was just in his head. And he said... Is it a sin to masturbate? Oh, he totally made that up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, if no one put a piece of paper in, like, and number one, what seventh grader is going to ask that question? Like, yeah. what, who's even thinking about that? Because we're all changing. Our bodies are changing. 
Well, anyway, I that freaked me out to the core. And I went home that night and I asked my dad. I said, Dad, you know, because of course you know what this, the priest said. He said, it's a sin to masturbate and blah, blah, blah. And, and I went home and asked my father that night. And he said, oh, yeah, it's a sin. And I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> Of course, that night was the first night that I... No. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're like, huh? I I'm never like, thought of it before. <laughs> I really hadn't. So I was like, I didn't even know what it meant. And then I, I kind of thought about it. I was like, oh, well, let's give it a try. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, I say that in the context that, you know, these are things that you learn, especially from religion, that, you know, like being gay is a sin. Mm-hmm. All these other limits that are, are that religion places on our lives that we can't do, this fear-based organization... Almost puts more fear. And so you combine that with small town, with not having any role models that look like me, with religion, with a, a dad who wanted me to be super masculine. They call that masculine toxicity, right? Like, yeah. So you're talking about the story that I told myself and the mask that I put on. It was strong. And so I didn't, number one, want to go to hell because who wants to just, you know, (laughs) if you're going to church, like who wants to go to hell? Like, it's not like, oh, me, me, me. No one's going to say that. And I didn't, you know, like I didn't want to disappoint anybody like my parents, because if I were to express what I was feeling, that could embarrass them. You don't want to embarrass your family. Um, I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to be an outcast in my town. So I said, nope, done. I'm going to I'm gonna never give in to any of these inclinations that I'm going through ever again. <laughs> it's so <laughs> I'm laughing because the stories, we should have a whole uh, podcast about the mm. stories that we were told in Catholic school. Because, or I have a similar one, which is like, that. I'll just quickly say it so people can know it. So um, we got brought to this retreat for confirmation. Okay. And this is like, we're like 10 minutes outside of Boston. We're not a super religious, like, you know, we go to CCD and it's time to make confirmation, but this isn't a very super religious. It was kind of like people went to church on Sundays, but like, you know, it wasn't like hardcore, you know, like a hardcore Catholic town, but we were Catholic. Some people were hardcore. Most people were not. So this one lady who worked as uh, one of the CCD teachers was a whole different breed, but we didn't know that. And so she recommended that we all go to this retreat before we make our confirmation. So we all get on this bus. It was like a two-day thing. We're like, this is crazy, whatever. We get there, and very quickly we realize that everybody else at this retreat wanted to be there and paid to be there, and, and we were the only ones that were kind of, like, forced to be there to go, to oh, make gosh. our confirmation. And it was not – it was a different breed of Catholic, I'm not even sure, because at one point we found ourselves – sitting in this gymnasium and this guy with the hat like you said was carrying with this other thing that looked like a stretcher this like statue and as they're going around to people who were all kneeling on little um on a freaking floor okay like yeah. a gym floor would for a long time my knees are hurting i'm moving around like i'm in seventh seventh grade or eighth grade when do we make or ninth or whatever and um they're crying when the thing goes by and they're touching it and like fainting i'm like this is weird <laughs> and then so they have all the girls go in one room and all the boys go in another mm. room and they had the girl teachers go in one and the boys i don't know what the boys talked about but well, they the ta- you now now you know what the boys <laughs> talked about because right. i just told you the story well yeah. they said okay so who here has hairy arms my friend tracy raised her hand they're like come up here they take this tape. It was like um, duct tape, like the silver, like electrical, like the hardcore tape, right? And they take this piece of tape and they stuck it on her hairy arm. And we were all like, what the hell are they doing? Next thing they do, they ripped it off. And she was like, ow. And they were like, how did that feel? She was like, it hurt. And then they put it back on 
and they in the same spot and they ripped it off again and she's like what they were like what about now she's like it didn't hurt as much like and they kept doing it until it just came right off apparently this was a chastity talk i still have no idea what the significance <laughs> of the tape and the hairy arm was but apparently if once you break that you know you have sex for the first time and you break virginity then oh. something to do with like basically by the end when the tape's falling off it means you're a slut <laughs> it won't hurt anymore right i'm, oh, I'm like but yeah I, I always look back at that and i'm horrified and so the other day on tiktok somebody said um tell me a weird like Catholic, like religious thing that you had to do when you were young and i told this story and somebody was like Oh, me too. And then I Googled it, and it was a thing that's, like, very frowned upon now, but a thing that they used to to, te- wow. used to teach kids about chastity. And I'm like, it's interesting because I really don't remember what the lesson was whatsoever other than the fact that you were putting tape on this. They person. ripped hair off of someone's <laughs> arm. <laughs> My God. So I'm like, what were they thinking? Like, really? <laughs> and we're both gay now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Anyways, oh gosh. So, um, once you told your dad, like, what was, how did he react? Yeah, that's a good question. And in fact, I never really told my dad I was gay. My mom ended up telling my dad mm-hmm. um, a couple years after I did, and so he knew for a long time. And my dad was emotionally and verbally abusive to my mother mentally. So finally, after 34 years, she finally divorced him. And I was really thankful because I'll never forget a theme of my childhood was basically trying to protect my mom mm-hmm. as she was protecting me from my dad. I was protecting her from my dad. So it's almost like we teamed together to protect ourselves emotionally, mentally. He never physically abused us, but it was more of a mental, emotional abuse. And so after my mother divorced my dad, it was awkward because I was trying to have a relationship with him, but I used to have a relationship through my mom. My mom was like the vehicle to have a relationship with him because I would call home and he'd pick up the phone and listen in and I would talk to her. And then at the end, it was like, okay, love you, bye. It wasn't, there was no conversation with him. So it was awkward. And so my dad joined this, again, going back to religion, joined this very conservative um, men's church group. Mm. You know, and my dad needed someone to hold him up in life. He needed his mom. He needed my mom. He needed then the church to hold him up because he didn't know what to do. And so over time... They started talking, and, I, and I'll never forget the conversation. I was driving home from work one day, um, and this is actually how I open up my book. Um, I basically said, um, you know, so how is everything going with the um, church group? He's like, oh, it's great. I finally have a group of guys that I can relate to. And I, so I just kind of cut to the chase, and I said, well, and this is like the third or fourth conversation we had over the phone after my mom's divorce. So it wasn't a lot. It, was, it wasn't like we just... And I had always wanted to have a conversation about me being gay because I never did. It was just he knew, but he, we, I never told him. And so I thought this would be a great way to lead him there. Well, <laughs> so I led him there, and he basically said, so what did the guys ask? I'm sure you had the time to talk about my sister and I. He's like, oh, yeah, we did. And I said, okay, so when, they came, when it came to me and my sexuality, what did you tell them? He's like, well, it's funny that you ask that. I've been meaning to talk to you about this for a long time. I just didn't know what to say, but now I do. And I've been praying to God of how to have this conversation with you. I'm like, okay, great. So he proceeds to tell me that, you know, he's like, I've known this for a long time. I just didn't know what it meant. And I'm like, okay, what do you mean? He's like, well, after being in this church group, 
I had many long conversations with these guys about what being gay meant. And I thought about this. And after they told me about five or six times, now I finally understand it. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> what What is he going to say? He basically says, well, Corey, this isn't, any, this isn't your fault. And I love you just as much. But, again, unconditional love shouldn't have a but in it. Um, mm-hmm. But he said, but what... I know now happens is that during conception, the devil slipped into your body when you were created and the devil grew inside of that egg and sperm. And then as you came out, the devil lives in your body and still lives in your body to this day. The only way that you can ever get rid of the devil in your skin is if you read the Bible and accept the teachings that are in the Bible and then only when you truly believe them that the devil will release from your body and you will go to heaven. I thought that all sins were forgiven. So <laughs> that's what I'm I saying. paused and I didn't really, I was like trying to comprehend that my dad literally just told me he thinks at 30 some years old that the devil lives in my body. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, me being a smart aleck, I said, well, what I learned in you know, the way babies were made is that that means either you or mom or the devil, because that's the way babies are made. Right? What did he say to that? It was a joke. And he, he didn't really say anything. And I, and I said, well, I don't know what else to tell you other than like, you know me better than anybody else. You've known me be- in my whole life. And would you really think that God would create someone to punish them and send them to hell? Um, and I said, there's no, there's no switch. Believe me, if I had a choice back when I was younger, wearing all the masks that we talked about to flip the switch and make it completely easier to live my life as a straight man, I would have done that a long time ago. I would have totally 100% flipped the switch before I knew what I know now, I would have gone, I would have flipped that switch and said, I'm straight. It's going to be easier. There's no, I don't want to get made fun of. I don't want to live a life of solitude or loneliness or go to hell. I would have totally flipped the switch. So I don't believe that it's as easy as just believing in something. And then some ghost will like evaporate from your skin. That just doesn't make sense to me. And so eventually we, the conversation ended, I, I, I pulled into my parking space and I said, well, maybe we can just agree to disagree or something about, he said, maybe we can just agree to disagree. And I'm like, well, I don't know. So I of course went to lots of therapy after that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what the heck did my father just tell me? Um, and I eventually, it came down to about six months later, I wrote him a note and I said, um, through lots of therapy and I really didn't talk to him and I wrote him a note, I sent him a letter and I basically very simply in a card said, um, dad, until you can, um, accept me as God made me, mm-hmm. I can no longer have a relationship with you. God bless Corey. <laughs> God, throw that God bless in there. Because I think for me, it's if, if, and I'm not, I'm not, we only have so much time on the planet. We only have so much energy we can expend. I'm not going to spend a lifetime expending energy trying to convince a grown man who was probably 40 something at the time, you know, older, probably 50 something at the time, trying to convince a 50 year old why my belief is better than your belief. Right. Especially when that's what you believe. Like maybe over time I could do that. But my dad continued to emphasize that he still loved me. But 
the devil lives in me. And I'm like, well, I don't want to ever bring a, a partner or a child to introduce to him when he's looking at me with two horns over my head. Right. Like, that's just not worth it. So I had to make the decision, this is back in 2009, to release my father from my life. And that was probably one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. But I think for me, I've realized that biological family and chosen family in my opinion, can be the same thing. You can't choose who your father or your mother are or your siblings or whomever, but they're my biological family. I just am going to spend my time and energy on this planet with people who accept all of me and not just part of me without strings attached, mm-hmm. right? Um, with and unconditionally really is the word. Um, when you can love someone unconditionally, I don't believe that can only be a biological relative. So that's the story of my father and, and my father and I to this day don't speak. Um, that's not true. I've, I've sent, he's, we've exchanged random text messages, but it's very basic. Um, and, uh, just like brief updates. Wow. So that makes me sad that your dad is missing out on such an amazing human being who is doing so much you know what I mean well thank you it's true and also um, I actually consider Corey my family like the chosen family one of my chosen family especially Um, yeah one of my best friends here yeah absolutely um, and likewise let's jump to jump without a parachute yeah okay because uh, I don't know how much time we have left I don't know how to check on this thing but um, I'm intrigued by the book and it's interesting because Corey and I had an event a couple weeks ago and we heard from Steve Harvey who told a story about jumping or basically the story was he's talking about he see it's like when you see people going by you who are super successful and you just see them going by it's like they're they're just cruising by with their parachute this parachute's already pulled they're just having the good good old time right just floating by and you're like I want to be in that parachute just floating looking at the scene doing the things and um but that in order for them to get there, you didn't see that, number one, they had to jump. And number two, the parachute didn't open right away. They were flailing for a little while. They thought they were going to hit the ground and, you know, be obliterated. But then the parachute opened up. But you have to jump even though you're not sure if that parachute's going to open or when it's going to open or how it's going to open. Um, and, Corey, I feel, I feel like you felt super aligned at that moment because your book is literally Jump Without a Parachute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I love that it's uh, just... I guess give us a little bit about the book because I know I want everyone who's listening to first of all go and check it out and um, I actually haven't read it yet and I and I apologize for that but I want to too I was looking I have it I'll give you a signed copy I would love that (laughs) but yeah guys go um, is it on Amazon yeah both of my books I almost became me Um, my memoir is on Amazon that became a bestseller in the LGBT biography category Um, and has over like 130 positive reviews so it's doing really well and then my second book Jump Without a Parachute. Um, has gotten some great reviews as well, and that's also became a bestseller in six categories when it was released last year, two years ago, now a year and a half, um, and that's also on Amazon. Yes, I love it. Sweet, and you have a podcast. And I did a podcast with thirty episodes in the course of one year. In fact, I need to revive revive that that podcast because uh-huh. I've I paused for a bit. It takes some work to do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. All right. So tell us a little bit. Go get the book, first of all, and I will too. And we'll bring you back after and maybe just talk about the book. And then when your new one is ready to come out, we can yeah. tease that. Um, but tell us like a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the Jump Without a Parachute is all about um, fulfillment in life and how to find fulfillment if you're not fulfilled today. 
So it was in the context of my career and my very unhappy career. I was raised, again, it talks about, this is, goes back to childhood about the things that we learned throughout life, including what our career should or shouldn't be. So my parents both had, my mom was a second grade teacher. My father was an electrician. They stated one career um, for their whole life. And I'll never forget my first day of business school um, or my undergrad, the, the professor said, you will have at least um, on average eight different careers. And I thought that was kind of silly. I mean, I think I'm on career number 10 now, so it makes all sense. But yeah. I stayed in my corporate career for 16 years, but I realized that it wasn't just one job. I mean, I was moving to different companies and different types of positions, but it was in the context of cor the corporate world. I was working for an organization who had a hierarchy with a president and managers and projects and silos and whatever. But I, there was just something inside of my gut that was pressing at me most of my career, probably the last 10 years. And I knew that I wanted to do something for myself, like a side gig or um, you know, either writing a book or um, doing something that I could go out and help other people succeed in life. I knew that I had something inside of me. I didn't know what that was. But what I found happened was the corporate world doesn't really give you time to explore that in a deeper way. Because think about it. When you're working 9 to 5, Monday morning, you go to work, you come home at 5, you're exhausted, you maybe go to the gym, you have dinner, you watch some TV, and you go to bed, and you repeat. And you do that the whole week. And then the weekends, all you want to do is rest, go have fun, whatever you want to do, go on a weekend trip, spend time with your loved ones, whatever that may be. And then you repeat. And then one week turns into one month, one month turns into one year, one year turns into five years. And next thing you know, like you've had these desires, but you've never really had time to focus on them because your job or your corporate world consumes all that time within that pattern and cycle that I described. Yes. Unless you say, I'm going to dedicate my weekends and dedicate my evenings to really figuring it out. But it's hard because you're like trying to find downtime to take your stress level down or whatever it is. It's not easy to do. In fact, that's why most people don't ever do that. They, and most people can't ever have a side hustle and a corporate job at the same time. Especially if you have a family. Successful. I mean, people do it and are cool and they, 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 they do it, but it's not... It's not to the level of maybe what they wished and hoped it would be. Professional level. Well, one day, I mean, it wasn't one day. It was a series of many, many, many days. People often ask me, like, was there, like, one thing that triggered you? And I was like, no, there's a series of things that built up in my gut that I knew that I should not want to. Actually, one of the triggers was a retirement party I went to. Hmm. And this guy had worked for PepsiCo for 35 years of his life. And, you know, imagine what you've been to a retirement party. Imagine what it is. You're in the same room after work one day. You're having a cocktail. There's a cake. There's hors d'oeuvres, whatever. It's, everybody's a little bit different. But then there becomes this speech. And maybe some people rib on you and tell funny stories about your career. And then you're left in front of a room with people that have impacted, have, you've impacted throughout your 30, 35 years. And you say some story. And then you go home and people congratulate you on a job well done. And then what? You get a watch. You, oh, yeah. I forgot about the watch. <laughs> I forgot about the plaque or like maybe yeah. the plaque Some or something. Or you something. get a watch. Yeah. Right? But that whole thing to me, I just sat there. And it was almost so surreal. Like I was watching myself in the future and I said, 
oh gosh, if this is what I'm working towards, I got to really rethink my life. I don't, and, and there's, again, there's nothing against retirement parties. Like, I, don't get me wrong. Some people, that's fulfilling to them. For me, I knew that there was something different, right. not better, different. Right. Not to say people that work for 35 years of a company, that's wrong. That's, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But I know there are others out there that there's something inside of their gut that says there's something different out there for mm-hmm. me. And so I just realized at that moment that it's time for me to jump. And I, re- I realize what is holding me back. Well, I mean, the easy things are how will I make money? How will I have benefits? How will I save for retirement? And I started thinking like those are the biggest things that hold me back because I don't know what I want to do. I don't know how I'm going to make income. I don't know how I'm going to get benefits. I don't know how I'm going to save for retirement. Those are the biggest things that were preventing me from ever exploring or taking a step in that direction. And so finally, I had to realize that if I, and I had heard this a long time ago, that if you're going to go, if you're going to go do something to find a different career, you have to jump all in. Right. Dabbling. And I tried, I actually started starting to create like a little wallet business and trying to create this little wallet to sell mm-hmm. through Amazon. Like I read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, yeah. <laughs> which I think back in the day apply, which I don't really think applies to this day because it's not as easy as it once was to just create a product, a product and sell on Amazon anymore because millions of people are doing that so i think that book has lived very well in the 90s i don't right. think that lives very well today because i don't think that's feasible anymore mm-hmm. so i thought oh my gosh all i need to do is work four hours a week and create this product and everyone's gonna buy it and blah 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 well i tried it it was it's really hard to do mm-hmm. again going back to the whole work week thing that i described you don't have a lot of time to focus on that mm-hmm. unless you like did your other job at your job <laughs> so finally i said you know what Corey? the only way for you to discover what you ultimately want to do is for you to go out and leave the situation. And so that's exactly what I did. Um, I actually asked for a leave of absence, um, which for those of you that are listening, like you should dig into your corporate policies and procedures because some of the big corporations offer an unpaid leave of absence, but you can come back into the same position and still get benefits while you're away. And I found that in our corporate policy and I took a six month leave of absence And I won't tell you the whole story because I write about it actually in my first book about how it all happened. But the premise of Jump Without a Parachute is that for me to go discover and ultimately do what what I'm doing now is I had to jump off the cliff without a parachute. Meaning not literally jump off a cliff, but I – a parachute just like you described, Jamie, is – you're going to have parachute strings holding you up to a parachute that allow you to nicely come down mm-hmm. and you're drifting around and it's fun and you're looking around, but that's called comfort, right? That is comfortability, which if you think about it, what's comfort having benefits, what's comfort having a bi- bi-weekly salary, what's comfort planning for your retirement. Mm-hmm. Those are all comfort zones. But when you don't have a parachute, guess what? You're super uncomfortable and you're going to have to figure out a way to land. And the thing I always tell people, the reason people don't do this is because they're scared of what if. What if I, and this is the funniest thing, well, what if I end up under a mattress under a, fr- a freeway one day with a, a homeless? I'm like, well, number one, that's not realistic because you're a smart human being. You are going to figure it out. And even if you take the first two steps, those first two steps, you're going to learn something new and it's going to lead to something else. Mm-hmm. And so the book is all about the five things I learned with jumping without a parachute. And in fact, I created a, a companion course that's free to take, 
with workshop with worksheets and nice. um, extra um, coursework for you to dive deeper into how do you figure out what you want to do. So I'm giving you the steps that you can literally do while you have your full time job with not you know all the things that I learned along the way. You can now take for free when you read my book and maybe create a roadmap for yourself to leave and set yourself up for success. I love that. I love that. Because listen, you're right. If, if somebody is happy in their position and they're like, all right, I work in corporate America. This is what I'm working towards. And I love this. And they wake up every day and they love it. That's great. Enjoy your retirement party. Enjoy your watch. Like we celebrate you. But if you were like Corey was or like I was because I was the same way. I was in line to if I wanted, I could you know, take over my parents' business, which did very, very well. And it just wasn't for me. And I tried and I just had this pit in my stomach every day. And I just knew there was something out there. You, you know what we're talking about. If you have that feeling in your gut where you're like, I just know there's something different out there. And I'm just going to interrupt you for a second that one of the chapters in my book is literally called listen to your gut. (laughs) And I actually take you through steps on how to go do that because I think most of us hear our gut but we don't listen. We talk ourselves out of it. We, we don't start listen telling to our ourselves yeah. a story. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, it's perfect. We start. You don't listen to your gut because you start telling yourself a story. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, I'm not talented enough to do it. I can't do that. I'm too old. I'm too this, whatever. Stories that we tell ourselves, um, which actually, this I'm about to jump way off into left field right now, but one of the things that I thought about, I wanted to talk to you about is, okay, so Corey and I are both similar in age. How old are you now? I'll be, I'm 42. I don't want to get 42. <laughs> I'm 39. I'll be 40 in a couple months. And what I love about the both of us is we're both single. Well, you might be dating somebody, right? No, I'm very <laughs> single. Okay. <laughs> and at this age where, you know, especially our straight friends are either married with kids or getting married again, second, third, fourth times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here we are, um, I think like kind of like a rare breed where we really value our not even alone time, but I just want to say like what we're focused on, which is it's hard to meet somebody when you are mm. driven and um, in a space of personal growth and continuing to grow. It's hard. And for me, that was a, a story that I was telling myself for a long time. Like, what's wrong with me? Mm. I need to meet somebody. Why can't I meet somebody? And then when I met Corey, I kind of s- slowed that story down. And ultimately, I don't really think that way anymore. I'm like, it's okay. You're 39. And yeah, maybe all these people are married. But also, look at them all getting divorces, too. And like, you know, I would rather just do what I'm meant to do. So I don't even know why I brought that up. Well, it's yeah, that's a whole... It's a whole other part podcast. podcast. Yeah, we, should, we should definitely, we could even do two parts. It's like the, the, the number one question I get from my TikTok account or my Instagram account is, how are you still single? And I could spend a whole podcast explaining, but it's not about that. It's just, I'm going to continue to live my life. And when someone fits within my world, that will work. But I'm driven to the point of helping other people. My higher purpose is to help other people be the most authentic they mm-hmm. can be in their lives. And look, like... Would it be amazing to date somebody? Sure. And I've dated people. And would it be amazing to have a partner? Absolutely. However, I'm not going to spend my time like pining and trying to find somebody because I think that's not a good use of my time. Right. And I think for me, my higher purpose is better fulfilled with helping people. And I'm certainly open to it. Um, that doesn't mean something's wrong with me. I mean, if you think about my story, like I've traveled a lot, I've done different things. It's been hard to meet people at different points in my life. And so now I'm at a point where I'm ready to do that. Um, but I think it took me a while. I had to be open to the idea. And I think before I was struggling with my career and I was struggling with the things I wanted in my life. I was in no position to, 
even date somebody. I needed to date myself and figure out myself first. And so now I think I'm really in a great position to to finally give into a relationship, and that's exciting for me. But until that happens, I'm gonna. I mean, I'm and I'm always gonna continue to give. It's just you know, there's nothing wrong. It's just it is what it is. Right. I love that. All right. So I guess final question. My final question is this. If you could go back now, because, you know, and I think we should have you back, like, I'm really talking and learning and helping people right now work with their inner child. So if you could go back and tell, I don't know, first of all, what age is it? When you think about going back and talking to your childhood self, what age is the first age that comes to mind? Because for me, for some reason, it's nine years old. I feel like for everybody, they have an age. I haven't ever been asked that question. That's a great question. I mean, I can see me going back probably at the age of six when I had a specific instance with another boy. Okay, so what would you go back and tell your six-year-old self? Exactly what my, well, my mom, I think my mom kind of knew something was different, but I think to let that person know that adversity is good. Right. I think oftentimes when we're bullied or we go through really tough position, tough things in life that we feel like we've failed um, or someone tells us something that really triggers us. I think to remember that you have to go through tough moments to become stronger, to be successful because the moment you stop learning, either either learning or dying. Mm-hmm. So the moment you stop learning, you're dying. And so when you go through adversity, you're learning something new. And I think adversity is so important. And I can go on. This is a whole topic of conversation. But I truly believe those that have gone through adversity early in their lives are more apt to deal with adversity later in their lives in a much better way. And almost not brush it off, but able to like get and navigate Pivot, that. step forward, yeah, make the moves to... And so I think that, to me, is if, if, if I could go back and tell my six-year-old self after that moment that I can recall, and by the way, that's in the first book as well, um, I would tell my six-year-old self that, you know, you are okay. You are perfect just the way God made you. And there's, you're no different than anybody else that you go to school with. Yeah, I love it. Cool. All right, guys, that's Corey Calvin. You can follow him. Um, why don't you just tell him where your socials? Absolutely. I am on Instagram, so it's at Corey.Calvin. There's no E in my first name, so C-O-R-Y dot C-A-L-V-I-N. I'm also on TikTok at the Corey Calvin, all one word. Um, those are the two best places to find me. I have a bio in both of those links. Talk about... Um, the both books you can find on that link. Um, you can also learn about the pivot travel trips, which we didn't get a chance to talk about that I lead um, that are more. Well, definitely come back because yeah. yeah, for sure. And I also lead all gay trips. Um, so anybody that wants to go on an all gay vacation. Um, and then of course, you know, Jamie and I, we both help people with wellness. Um, but um, those are all the things that I do. Um, and then I'm going to try to get my podcast up, which you can listen to that on the link as well in those bios. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for hanging out. All right, bye guys. Thanks for having me, Jamie. You're awesome. You're welcome. All right, that was our episode with Corey. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you took some value from that. And if you did, that you'll go and leave us a review. And we'll be back here again soon. Have a good day.